0: Hello and welcome to Building Bridges, a podcast from the Harry Bridges Center for Labor Studies at the University of Washington, Seattle, where we explore the people and stories of the labor movement. I'm Anita. And I'm Maya. And we're both research assistants at the Bridges Center. Today, we're here with soon-to-be Dr. Andrew Hedden, Associate Director of the Harry Bridges Center, to talk about his dissertation, which covers Seattle labor history in the 1970s, global capitalism, and the defeat of worker power. Hi, Andrew. How are you doing today?
1: I'm good. Thank you for having me.
0: Can you remind me again, how long have you been with the Harry Bridges Center for Labor Studies?
1: Uh, I will have been with the Harry Bridges Center for 16 years this coming March. And the center has grown a ton since I've been there. When we first started, we were in a Harry Potter office under the stairs in Smith Hall. Um, No windows and uh, have since graduated to the mezzanine level where we have a nice office and love to have people visit.
0: Yeah, it's a great office. I also recommend people visit.
1: Yeah, Smith Hall, uh, mezzanine uh, 266.
0: Um, Yeah, so we're here to talk about Andrew's dissertation today called The Empire of Tomorrow, Seattle and the Making of Global Capitalism in the 1970s, which examines how shifts in American global power were experienced, advanced, and contested on an urban scale by workers, welfare rights activists, local and federal government officials, businessmen, businessmen, unions, and refugees. In examining the history of Seattle in the 1970s, the dissertation argues that American empire was in crisis in the 1970s and that its reconstitution ultimately required the defeat of worker power. Um, so what made you choose to focus specifically on labor history in Seattle in the 1970s? Um,
1: well, I was born in Seattle area, raised in Seattle area, and um, have a family history that goes back a long ways in Seattle and um as i lived in seattle and got to know its history and um organized in seattle worked in worked at the the harry Bridges center i had all sorts of questions about how this uh seattle of today came to be um how did we did we get this high tech highly um unequal economy that seattle is known for today where you have the richest people in the world the jeff bezos and the bill gates um alongside some of the worst uh, homelessness in in the United States. And I I want to know, how did that economy come to be? What were some of the moments in Seattle's past that um, that led to this outcome? And as I started reading up on Seattle history, um, I found that the 1970s was a huge black hole in the city's written history. Um, There's very little that's been written about it. Um, There was some that's been written during the decade um, that was really narrow in perspective. And very little about Seattle um, after World War II and uh, the history of its labor movement. It has a really celebrated uh, labor history prior to World War II. Any uh, student of labor history has probably heard of the 1919 Seattle General Strike, uh, which was a moment that in labor history that was, you know, famous around the world when workers in the city shut down uh, the city for a week. That's well known, but um, the city of Seattle was completely transformed by World War II. Uh, The composition of its workforce changed um, over the course of the 20th century, and uh, very little has been written about um, workers or labor uh, since World War II in Seattle. So those were all things I wanted to learn about, um, questions I wanted to answer about um, the Seattle we know today came about and uh, yeah.
2: You start off by writing about Carlos Bulasan, a Filipino labor organizer and author of America's in the Heart. Bulasan is now a a celebrated figure, but as you wrote in the introduction, he died poor and homeless in Seattle at the age of 42. What made you choose to highlight this part of his story?
1: Well, I open my dissertation with the story of Carlos Bulasan because I wanted to highlight how the realities of American empire have always been part of Seattle's history as a city and its development. Uh, as I studied Seattle's history in the 1970s, I became convinced that, that, the changes that the city went through were the same changes that were, that, that American empire was going through in the 1970s. You had, uh, the U S military defeated in, um, Vietnam. You had the, uh, the kind of centrality of the U.S. economy um, to the world economy completely changing in the 1970s. That was all because Seattle had this deep relationship to U.S. power in the world. You know, Seattle was basically modern Seattle was more or less built during World War II um, through all this federal money that went into companies like Boeing, which built, you know, airplanes for the war effort and then became one of the world's largest manufacturers of airplanes. Uh, But even before Boeing was established, um, Seattle's economy had all these deep ties to um, American imperialism around the world. Um, One of the primary examples of that was the U.S. and the Philippines. Um, After the Spanish-American War of the uh, late 19th century, the U.S. took over the Philippines and occupied the islands, um, took over the Philippines as a colony. The presence of the U.S. empire in the Pacific really shaped Seattle quite a bit. Seattle was uh, a place where the military would ship out um, to places like the Philippines. Uh, there was also a lot of international trade that flowed through the port of Seattle that was created through U.S. imperialism, like in the Philippines. And so Seattle's development was was always really tied to U.S. imperialism. And I felt that Carlos Bulasan, who was a Filipino migrant um, to the United States, Arriving in the 1920s, uh, his story really illustrates uh, Seattle's relationship to U.S. imperialism. Bulusan was also a huge critic of U.S. empire. Uh, he was hounded by the FBI till his very last days um, because he remained in contact with um, Filipino revolutionaries in the Philippines. But he was more or less physically defeated by U.S. empire. Um, he was black. He was a writer who was blacklisted. Um, couldn't find work, um, had lived in poverty his whole life, um, had suffered th- through alcoholism, and he dies at a very young age uh, in Seattle. He dies at the age of 42. So I wanted to highlight kind of the costs of, of empire, but also um, on workers, you know, Asian workers like Bulisan, uh, and talk about how Seattle's foundation was in U.S. empire, uh, which brings us to the 1970s when kind of the empire that um, the United States had established after World War II is kind of in crisis and is changing. So Bulasan's story is meant to be kind of a backdrop uh, to the changes that are coming to Seattle in the 1970s.
0: Well, thank you. I wanted to know what the process of researching the topics in your dissertation was like. Did you have any challenges in finding any of the information you wanted to know?
1: Uh, Well, my dissertation starts with a big um, event that is kind of famous locally in Seattle. Uh, People call it the Boeing bust. And it was this period from 1969 to 1971 when the Boeing company nearly went bankrupt and laid off uh, 60,000 people in under two years, which drove the worst unemployment rate um, in a city since the Great Depression. So Seattle was making international headlines for its unemployment rate. It was featured in, the, in London's The Economist. It was featured in The New York Times. It was featured in The Wall Street Journal. And people were calling it things like uh, Appalachia West or the food stamp, stu- food stamp capital of the United States. And I wanted to know how Seattle survived that experience and how by the end of the 1970s and in the early 80s, Seattle was becoming celebrated as one of the most livable cities in the United States. And uh, to me, that was always a paradox. I didn't understand how um, this city could be going through such economic straits in the early 70s. But by the 1980s, it's being ex- uh, celebrated as one of the most wealthy and successful cities in the United States. So I knew my story had to begin with the Boeing bust. And um, I began by looking at uh, just learning as much as I could, reading as much as I could in local newspapers and in books and in archives about that experience of the Boeing bust. And as I identified the people that were involved in it, I helped me narrow down who should I be researching. Um, so that started for me with workers at Boeing. Um, there is a union at Boeing. It's been there for, um, since the 1930s, the international association of machinists district lodge, seven, five, one. I wanted to look at how the union responded. To the Boeing bust. So I read through the union's newspapers. I've talked to former Boeing workers and uh, union activists. I looked through any archives I could find from uh, District Lodge 751, and I got a sense of how the union had responded to the layoffs. Uh, at the same time, in all the news- newspapers I was reading, uh, there was other high-profile people. Uh, there was a vibrant welfare rights activist movement in Seattle in the early 1970s. The welfare rights movement was something that was going on throughout the United States and at one point was very powerful. Um, it had lots of influence on the federal government. And this was welfare rights recipients in different cities who had been teaming up with lawyers and other allies to who win, win the welfare relief that they were entitled to by law, but which governments were usually not equipped to provide. And so... This because the Boeing unemployment in Seattle, uh, the welfare rights movement kind of gained new strength and they saw it as an opportunity to um, partner up with all these laid off Boeing workers to demand increased relief and welfare um, for Seattle residents. So this was a story that was in the news a lot at that time. So I was able to find different archives at uh, the University of Washington in special collections that um, dealt with the welfare rights movement. So I found some people who had worked in local service agencies and things like that who had left their personal records uh, at the university. So that's how I was able to tell that story. And that's where I started. I started locally, kind of in neighborhoods. And as the project expanded, my scope kind of um, broadened. So um, right before the pandemic, uh, in fact, two weeks before the COVID-19 pandemic, I went to Southern California to the Richard Nixon Presidential Library, and I found all the files that I could about Seattle in the 1970s and um, spent a whole week just going through files and correspondence in the Nixon White House about Seattle and its unemployment. And I was able to piece together the story of how the White House responded to Seattle's unemployment. And that gave me a really good sense of how Seattle fit into the larger U.S. economy and how Seattle's uh, importance to U.S. empire really shaped how the federal government responded um, to the unemployment. The Nixon administration was really concerned that the Boeing, Boeing's bankruptcy would hurt U.S. interests, um, economic interests. And so they did everything they could to help Boeing recover. They didn't organize a bailout, uh, but they did do a lot of things in policy and so on to, to help Boeing recover. And I was able to get that uh, from the Nixon archives.
2: Your dissertation spans over five chapters that range from uh, welfare politics to international trade to race and class. Of these five chapters, which is your favorite and why?
1: It's difficult to choose a favorite because I think each chapter is kind of a piece and larger puzzle. There's different, I had, some chapters were more fun to write than others. Um, I don't find the internal politics of the White House to be that interesting. Um, So sometimes that could be, that wasn't very fun to write. Um, I'm much more interested in local activists and their stories. It's hard to, it's hard to choose because each, each, each chapter um, contributes to the larger argument in some way. There are some chapters that I kind of had to rush to finish the dissertation and I need to revisit and make stronger. And those would probably be my least favorite, but only because I wasn't able to accomplish everything I was hoping to. But I'm told that's the nature of a dissertation is you're never happy with it. And it's better to be finished than it is to to keep keep plugging away till it's perfect.
0: Yes, for sure. That's the staple of every writer and their feelings towards their own writing. Um, so. In that sense, what do you hope readers will gain or take away f- after reading your dissertation?
1: Well, there's two two things that I think I hope that readers would take away from my dissertation, which uh, I hope will someday form the basis of a book that a wider audience can read. Uh, the first is that you can't tell the his- history of Seattle or really any U.S. city without talking about U.S. empire. Um, what U.S. empire is, the relationship of the United States to the rest of the world, um, how the U.S. stays central to the world economy, um, how its military kind of impacts and, you know, seeks to control other parts of the world, and the ways that wealth, you know, flows back to the United States and contributes to building cities uh, like Seattle. Um, That's the first thing that I would hope readers get is a sense that you can't tell Seattle's story in isolation from the rest of the world and it's very common in urban history to tell stories of cities in isolation urban history is known for its stories of neighborhoods and local local level histories and uh but that's not the nature of cities Uh, cities are kind of command and control centers of global capital and workers and money and um you know, goods and products all flow through cities from other parts of the world. The second piece that I hope people would take away from is you can't tell the history of U.S. empire or U.S. cities in general without centering workers. The power of workers, whether that was in organized labor or in social movements, uh, was a huge piece of, of what you know U.S. policy policymakers were reckoning reckoning with in the nineteen seventies as U.S. empire was in crisis. In order for U.S. empire to continue, um, the U.S. business had to kind of reorient its relationship to the rest of the world. It had to send labor um, outside of the United States uh, where it was cheaper, but it also needed to retain certain kind of command functions of the global economy within the United States. For Seattle, that meant an increase in business services. The financial and legal and um, other things that global business needs um, were increasingly becoming centered in cities like Seattle, so that Seattle's relationships with other places, it was less connected to its region and the areas around it than it was to other cities around the world. And in order for that to happen, the economy had to change, but worker power within that economy had to be defeated. Um, because there was a lot of those sectors that that the business was seeking to change and transform were unionized, or there were social movements that were becoming um, very demanding on the U.S. government, like the welfare rights movement, that um, the U.S. government and policymakers were not um, were not did not want to meet the demands of those movements. So those movements had to be defeated as well. Uh, it wasn't without the defeat of. Organized labor and social movements that the changes that the United States economy goes through in the 70s could happen. Um, so those are the two things. I think the two takeaways again are U.S. empire and its relationship to cities in the United States, and then the the importance of workers, uh, not just organized labor, but um, workers understood broadly to that that transformation.
2: Um, I want to ask a quick follow up question as sort of caveat. Um. You mentioned that you grew up in Seattle, and so I imagine you had a lot of personal knowledge or maybe even a lack of knowledge. Um, Just, you know, I'm sure there's a lot of things you don't think about um, when you live somewhere your entire life. There's a lot of things you kind of choose to ignore. It goes, you get a sort of tunnel vision uh, to your surroundings. Is there anything in your research or in your writing that kind of made your jaw drop once you did learn about something? in relation to Seattle and its um, uh, relationship with U.S. empire?
1: It ans- I think my research, I was able to answer some questions I've always had about Seattle or that I hear that are really common that other people answer and um, which I've never really been uh, satisfied with the more popular answers that people give. One of those questions is why is Seattle so white? I mean, Seattle is one of the whitest populations of a major U.S. city, and it's been that way for a long time. And the reasons that people often give for that is, you know, the the racism that existed in Seattle, uh, the um, you know residential segregation that that was here with the redlining, um, racial racially restrictive covenants, you know, that sort of a racial segregation. But those kinds of things existed in cities across the United States. In fact, they were probably even worse in some cities. That had large populations of color cities like detroit and los angeles and places like that had the same same racial restrictions so why did seattle remain so white while others um, that wasn't the case and the answer that i've landed on uh well there's two two parts to it first seattle is not um, just because numerically seattle's been white doesn't mean it hasn't had long-standing communities of color um, particularly asian communities and when you focus on how white Seattle is demographically, um, you lose sight of the stories of those communities and their, their struggles and perseverance. But the second thing is that Seattle was really built white. I mean, Seattle's um, economy was built through the Boeing company, which had a really racially segregated workforce. Black workers were really kept out of um, the aerospace industry through World War II, um, often through practices that were also the responsibility of the union at Boeing, um, District Lodge 751. And um, those restrictions, Black workers, you know, came to work at Boeing more in in large and larger numbers um, through the 20th century, but they were always the last hired and the first fired. So in the Boeing bust of 1971, the percentage of Black workers at, at Boeing just fell, just Uh, markedly because of um, the seniority rules and things like that at at Boeing. So if you were hired last, you know, you're being fired first. Um, But Seattle's always been white, not only because it was built white, like Boeing's attracting all these educated white males to the city. I mean, they're recruiting not from the local um, labor workforce, uh, because Seattle's always been kind of small. They're always attracting Uh, people from across the country, like migrants from across the country. And that was primarily white and male. So you had all these white men being recruited to Boeing, and that was kind of building the population of Seattle. Uh, But then that kind of population had to be, um, I mean, that that sort of racial segregation was maintained throughout um, the 70s and 80s. You know, Seattle, as it grew, Seattle's communities of color grew too, but the proportions often stayed the same. And I discovered through looking at uh, the records of economic development uh, professionals, people who are trying to recruit businesses to Seattle, that they would often, the the kinds of businesses they were trying to attract, really prioritized white workers also. And the thing that really struck me um, and was kind of one of those aha moments, uh, was looking at records of. Uh, Seattle business boosters trying to attract Japanese companies to Seattle in the late 1970s and during this period uh, Jap- Japan was was looking to invest in the United States and was looking at different cities and they straight up told Seattle business people that they were attracted to Seattle because it was so white that they because there were so few black workers um Seattle was an attractive place and this wasn't something implied it wasn't something they kind of hinted at. It was like they straight up told this to Seattle business uh, recruiters. And rather than kind of pushing back against that, Seattle recruiters kind of leaned into it. They provided Japanese companies with information and data on affirmative action, which in particular was something that Japanese business were really concerned about. Uh, Because this was at a time when affirmative action was um, first being established. And it wasn't only in higher education, like we think of it now, but it was in blue collar jobs, in um, things like um, factory work and in construction trades and things like that. So Japanese uh, business people were seeing this in the news and they were really concerned that they would be forced to hire black workers. And so um, it just showed that the companies that have always sought to invest in Seattle have kind of reinforced its racial profile over time. And uh, of course, um, there's another part of the story, and that the uh, Asian populations in Seattle get much larger after the um, 1960s when when immigration reform happens. Uh, but again, the immigration reform tends to uh, prioritize uh, immigrants of a certain profile, partic- particularly professionals, and so that again that changes the the composition of the city too. So it was that thing about black workers in japanese business that was is the only kind of thing you really find in an archive um because it's really it's hidden there it's not something that business people were trying to broadcast because that would have been a big scandal um but it was something that they were accommodating behind the scenes
0: yeah that's crazy but not that surprising in my opinion so switching topics away from your dissertation but to the fu- the very near future um, you're teaching Intro to Labor Studies, a very popular political science class at UW, um, in winter quarter for the first time. Um, how are you feeling about that? Will you be bringing more of the history of Seattle into the curriculum?
1: Um, I'm feeling anxious because it's a big lecture class and lecture uh, classes are probably my least favorite kind of educational like um, model. Um, To have somebody just stand and lecture at you for, you know, four hours a week is, I don't think, the the most effective form of learning. However, I'm going to do what I can to kind of encourage students to apply what they learn in Introduction to Labor Studies to their own experiences and their own lives, uh, whether that's their own working working histories or the, the histories of their families. That's the benefit to uh, uh, Introduction to Labor Studies is that it's a it's talking about work and labor, which are topics that everyone in the class um, will have some relationship to. Everyone is going to have to work at some point. And um, talking about that, being able to talk about labor and relate it to people's experience is what I'm really looking forward to. Related to that, of course, I'll be bringing in uh, the history of Seattle. It's what I know best, um, and it's also hopefully what I hope um, students will be able to relate to. Um, I'm sure there will be lots of students from the Seattle area there and talking about their experience growing up in this in this city that's that's um, been constantly changing and talking about, you know, the experience of their families. When did their family come to Seattle? Uh, you know, was it a job that they came for most likely Um, So what's the history of that? Um, How has the economy changed? And how does that relate to their experience?
2: Are the students and faculty of UW ever going to be blessed with a standalone class for Seattle in the making of capitalism in the 1970s?
1: Um, Oh, there is a there is a history of the Pacific Northwest class, which, you know, probably touches on that. I would love to teach a more advanced seminar that gets more into the nitty gritty of what the global economy was and is and how Seattle has been related to that. So someday.
0: Fingers crossed. So for other aspiring labor historians out there, um, is there any advice you would give to someone who wants to do a PhD in labor history or just historical research regarding labor?
1: Well, researching labor history and doing a PhD in labor history are two very different things. I hope that anyone has interest in researching labor history, whether that um, is just reading books you know, about labor history or doing your own original research. I think there's so much you can learn about your yourself, um, about the places that you live, um, about how the world came to be the way it is by, by doing research in labor history. Work is really central to everyone's life. It's really central to um, to history, and um, you can't understand the way things are today without understanding how labor, understanding labor history. A Ph.D. in labor history is a whole other thing. You have to be really uh, invested in learning uh, labor history as a profession, and you have to be willing to do a lot of things that are kind of secondary to just doing labor research. Anyone considering a PhD in labor history, I think the first thing you need to consider is what's it going to cost you. Um if it's going to if it's if you're in a program that's going to support you through the program, through TAing and and other things, then um then go ahead and do it. If you can get through a PhD program with paying as little as possible, then it's worth it. The second thing is that you have to really focus on developing a skill that you're not going to be taught in your PhD program. Uh, PhD programs um, don't teach the skills that you will use in a job or in the job market. They train you to be an academic historian, and those jobs are increasingly um, unavailable. If you want a job like that, you have to be willing to move anywhere, wherever the job is available. and. Uh, it's rare that you'll be able to teach specifically what it is that you studied. Uh, You have to have kind of a general understanding and you have to be able to teach and research on a lot of different things. So if you're doing a PhD in labor history, uh, my advice is one, make sure that you, you get through it without paying too much money or any money at all. And second, that you're developing a skill on your own that you can um, use to find a job somewhere else else so in my in my experience i got i i worked at the harry bridges center throughout my phd in in history and that gave me all sorts of administrative skills and budgeting skills and general just organizing um, experience that i'm i know i trust that i'll always be able to use in future jobs um i can't say that i've really learned anything in my phd program that's going to lead to a job opportunity someday um it was more of a, I did it because I'm passionate about labor history and it gave me, uh, a structure to, to kind of pursue that passion.
2: Um, is there anything that you're looking forward to in the near or far future?
1: Uh, I'm looking forward to being done with my dissertation. Uh, I still have some final revisions to do, so it's not, um, behind me yet, but, um, you, you have to write a dissertation to a very specific audience in a very specific way, and you have to frame an argument in a certain way, and you're not really writing uh, in a way to be compelling to a general audience or to tell a story. Um, you can do those things, but uh, when you go up against your dissertation committee, they're not going to be asking you about the colorful stories you, you told that a general reader is going to want. They're, they're asking, they're measuring your work against what other scholars have written, and Honestly, that's not where my interests are. I, I'd rather tell a story of Seattle to a general audience uh, than I would like to make arguments with a small, a small group of scholars um, who study this stuff for a living.
0: Yeah. So, does that mean in the future you're think you're you would ever consider publishing a book um, based on this research you've done?
1: Um, I hope so. My goal is to write a book. I thought when I started my dissertation that I was going to do my dissertation so well that it would translate really easily into a book. And now I'm resigned to the fact that I'm going to have to probably write the thing from scratch, just because you write a dissertation in a completely different way than you would if you're just trying to tell a compelling story. Um, So yeah, it'll, it'll probably be another 10 years. It took me 10 years to finish graduate school. It'll probably take another 10 years to write the book, but the history, the history hasn't isn't going to change. So, um, it's just a matter of getting it done.
0: Yeah. So, since you've been doing all of this uh, research for your dissertation, I wanted to know about any cool or interesting books you've read in the process or outside of the process. Um, and end this interview with a fun little question. So, what are two or three books you recommend to the audience and why?
1: First book I would recommend uh, is Carlos Bulasan's America's in the Heart. Uh, it's his semi-autobiographical account of uh, what it was like to be a Filipino migrant worker in the 1930s during the Great Depression in the United States. And um, it is still today a really um, captivating read. Um, and it tells history that's still not centered enough in mainstream history. And it's got uh, Seattle um, connections. Bulasan spent a lot of time in Seattle, and there's scenes that take place in Seattle. It's also just a really good history book. Uh, one of the things that's not really well known about um, America's in the Heart is that all the stories that Bulasan tells more or less took place. Um, there's actually some evidence that he was collecting either newspaper accounts or personal experience. Um, and kind of weaving it all together. So he didn't experience everything he describes in the book, but uh, it more or less happened, like all the events that that are accounted for in the book. So um, it's a great history book, but it's also just a good read. And uh, especially if you've grown up in the Seattle area, it gives you a window into the city's history um, that you can't get anywhere else. The labor history book that I recommend, but is not fun to read (laughs) Is uh, a book called Prisoners of the American Dream by Mike Davis. Mike Davis is a, uh, he passed away last year and he's a kind of a famous uh, Marxist writer. Uh, he wrote some famous books about Los Angeles, uh, one called City of Quartz, um, the other called Ecology of Fear. But in the uh, early 1980s, he published uh, his first book, which is a survey of U.S. working class history and uh, in the context of global political economy. It is really heavy. It's um, very dense, but I've never found a book that is so comprehensive in kind of the wide scope of U.S. labor history. He talks about the kind of classic questions in U.S. labor history, like why was there never a workers party established and things like that? He reviews kind of the history of the 19th century, history of the labor movement in the 20th century. And then he, the best chapters of the book, I feel like are, are he talks about the 70s and the 1980s, and he has these predictions about the the direction of the U.S. economy. That reading them today, they all come true. Uh, he's talking about how the Democratic Party's politics are changing, how it's it's drifting away from organized labor. Um, how the U.S. economy is changing from, uh, you know, being the production center of the world to being the financial, service, you know, economy center of the world, and uh, it's it's incredible to read um, just today and to see how much he got right. It's very dense. Uh, he doesn't write um, in a in a pleasant way, so it's a tough book to read. But it's one I continue to t- return to again and again uh, because it's so comprehensive and uh and it's it's very radical and it's very uncompromising too
0: awesome thank you for the recommendations
1: i know I'm you asked not, for I'm three but
0: no I it's okay two to three three is a bit much
1: we have a third one i guess um well there's another older book um from the 1980s that helped me change my thinking about seattle um a lot and it's called rise of the gun belt by an economist by the name of Anne and a group of of economists and they studied uh, how US cities had developed um, through the 20th century and its relationship to military um, policy. And I don't think there's a book that really matches it. It, Even though it was written in the 1980s, um, it's really the the one book that's discussed how uh, the development of US cities has been so closely tied to the military industrial complex and US foreign policy. And it also has a chapter about Seattle. It has a chapter, I think it's called something like the the world's biggest company town, you know, Boeing in Seattle. And that helped, that was really foundational to my thinking about Seattle history and um, how central the Boeing company has been to Seattle. So that's the third book I would recommend, um, The Rise of the Gun Belt.
0: Thank you so much, Andrew, for joining us today um, on as our very first guest on the um Right now unnamed Harry Bridges Center podcast.
1: Well, thanks for having me. I hope, hope it was interesting.
0: Yeah, it was super interesting. And I look forward to um, either reading maybe, maybe not the whole dissertation, um, but the no. definitely the definitely the book version when, when whether it comes out, you know, in five years, 10 years or whenever.
2: Thank you for joining us today and good luck with all of your revisions.
1: Great. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Um, it's, it's a pleasure to, to talk about this stuff. Thank you.
2: Thank you for listening to Building Bridges. We hoped you enjoyed hearing a glimpse into the world of academic labor history research. If you're interested in staying up to date with the Harry Bridges Center, follow us on Instagram at UW Harry Bridges or email hbcls at uw.edu with any questions.